0: Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6. As you're doing that, let me invite all of you to stick around for our Sunday school hour. I'm going to be beginning a series uh, that I'm going to teach you over the next few months on fundamentals of the faith, but this morning is just understanding our need to have our theology and our doctrine aligned right and to look at some of the attacks that uh, are being waged against us. So please um, take advantage of that this next hour. Matthew chapter 6, some familiar words, and let me read these to put them in our mind. Verse 19 Do not store up treasures for yourselves on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures. In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness... How great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Over the last month, we've been looking at the issue of stewardship. And stewardship is defined as something that is given to someone else for safekeeping, for harboring, for tending. We've looked at different things that the Lord has given us to be stewards of. Now, the second you say stewardship in any church, you automatically think, oh, here we're going to talk about money and giving. And we're going to talk about that today, but this is the fifth of those studies. And I want you to see that that's not the only thing that God intends us to be stewards of. Up till now, very little has been said about money and possessions, though that's the immediate thought and implication when you say the word stewardship. Let me admit it. It is very difficult for me personally to talk about money and giving in the church. I feel like there's a conflict of interest. I understand that the church remunerates me. My family is so well cared for by our church. It is an awkward thing, and yet... To ignore it is to ignore large sections of the Bible. So please understand my motivation, and if you can feel my pain with me for a moment, if, if, if you're happy to be visiting with us today, this is, this is not a TBN. We, we don't talk about money week in and week out. I can't remember the last time that I spoke on money. I, I'm not sure I, I have uh, here at the church except with reference to our ABLE initiative. It's impossible to skip and miss the fact that the Bible has a lot to say about money. And to ignore those passages would be to to be um, unfaithful in biblical exposition. So today I want to look briefly at the subject of possessions and money and also to give some principles that can guide our thinking regarding our gifts to the Lord. Jesus says right here in the passage we just read, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Also, he's informing us of something. He's showing that our hearts follow our treasure. Jesus is saying this. Let me see your checkbook. Let me see your credit card statements, your Visa and MasterCard, your American Express, your Discover, whatever else you have. Let me see your receipts. Let me see your investments. Let me look at your your portfolio. Let me talk to your... Guides and your financial counselors who who manage your estates. And when Jesus has all of that laid out, he will look at all of it and he'll say, Oh, I can see exactly what your treasures are. Very clear. Where your treasure is, there is your heart also. He climaxes that statement by uh, that in teaching by saying, It's impossible to serve God and money, God and wealth. Now, let me say some things from the very beginning here. Money is not bad. Money is not the enemy. Jesus speaks more on money than he does anything else in terms of his illustration. He he uses it constantly as investing is good and and managing your money is good. Getting a return on investments is good. He uses that as the basic foundation for teaching spiritual principles. So it's important to know from the beginning, Jesus is not anti-money, not at all. What he is telling us though is that your treasure is at the end of your heart. Your heart follows your treasure. I'm gonna quote Randy Alcorn um, several times this morning. His his, uh, teaching on finances has been very pivotal in my own uh, heart and I can't improve on some of his words so I have several quotes from him we'll look at this morning. He says this, suppose you buy shares of General Motors, what happens? You suddenly develop an interest in general motors, you check the financial pages, you see a magazine article about GM and you read every word, even though a month ago, you would have passed right over it, end quote. In other words, if you are vested, if you invested in something, you're interest, instantly interested in it. Jesus talks about the same principle, Now, we've read uh, down through a significant section of Matthew, but what I want to do also is continue on where Jesus adds to this. He gives almost a footnote on his teaching on giving. Look now at uh, verse 25 of Matthew 6. For this reason, what reason? The reason that you can't serve God in wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Very interesting. Jesus says there are things going on in your resource set and what you own and what you're about that are way beyond financial. Then he gives an illustration. Look at the birds of the year. They do not sow, nor do they reap or gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they. Has anyone seen a bird's garden? Not your garden that the bird eats out of. A bird that's planted a garden, a bird that's that's pulled things together, and then a harvest has a little bird bulldozer, has a little bird combine, and it gets all the harvest and puts it in barns for, for the winter. Birds don't do that. You have to eat. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life. The temptation is to stop and and preach this passage, but this is only introductory. How many nights, how many days, how many hours have any of us thought about money? What we don't have, what we do have, how we're gonna get what we need. What uh, what about uh, rent? What about mortgage? What about food? What about kids? What about college? What about, what about? How's that worry invested in our lives? That's Jesus' question. Has it added anything to us? And why are you worried about clothing, what you, your basic needs? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Anyone seen a little lily with a little uh, sewing machine out there taking care of what, the way it looks? Please don't say yes to that. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. He says the greatest uh, accoutrements in life by the most rich, uh, richest person in the world Solomon couldn't match a flower that God makes. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, and is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? In this little indictment, you of little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Would you underline verse 32, at least in your heart? Do you think God woke up one morning and said, oh no, the kids need school clothes. Oh no, they gotta eat today. Angels, did you see this? We need to have a conference on this because there are some serious needs in Overland Park. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, the basic necessities of life, will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus defines very clearly in this passage, rich, being rich, as having the assurance of a day's food, a day's shelter, and a day's clothing. It's remarkable, isn't it? That's the the base. Everything above that is wealth. We've talked about this over the last few weeks. If you have more than one thing to wear, if you know where you're gonna sleep tonight and tomorrow night, and if you're not getting up this morning praying what the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread, or you might not eat, then you are biblically defined as wealthy. What if you have more than what you need? Is that a biblical problem? That's a good question, because all of us have more than, than we really need. Kind of depends. Um, money's not the problem. One of the most misquoted, misunderstood verses in the whole Bible is 1 Timothy 6.10. It says, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Not the, not the money itself. The love of money is the root, it's the foundation of all sorts of evil. And some, listen, By longing for it, they don't even have it. They've just wanted it. Some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. By the way, in 1 Timothy 3, 3, the same word is used, the same phrase, an elder is to be free from the love of money. The question is not, do you have money, but do you love it? It's okay to have money. It's okay to have an inheritance. It's okay to make money. I hope you make lots of money and invest it in the kingdom. There's nothing spiritually honorable about being poor and destitute. James tells us that there's a contrast between the rich and the poor, and both have problems. Both can prevent you from seeking the Lord. But look back at, the, at that text or think about it in First Timothy 6.10. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it. That's important. Living in the world of wanting more, accumulating more. You know, I was thinking about this just uh, yesterday putting some notes together. There's really just kind of three kinds of people when it comes to money. There's, there's, uh, there's hoarders. They just hoard money. They, they save money. I, I, I grew up with a, with a family like this. this. This, this father was... I remember going over to his, uh, my friend's house and he had his, all of his investments laid out one time and he was telling me, you need to start investing. I'm 16, I mean, I, I can't even have an account yet and he's telling me everything I need to be doing and his whole point, I remember his son saying, yeah, my dad saves everything and never spends anything and the guy had like two things to wear. He just saved, 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 saved. Then there's spenders. Uh, there's spenders. You spin, spend, 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 spend. Someone thinks, okay, I only have $5 to my name, but I see this this article of clothing, and it costs $50, but it really should cost $100. I should, look how much I'm saving if I get the $50 jacket, when it's really a $45 loss. Do, Do you see what's going on? Going into, what is the big word? Starts with a D, ends with a T? Debt. And this is for another time. Not all debt is bad. But debt for desires rather than debt for necessities really has to be evaluated. So how well are we doing with our heart about money? Do we love money? And please understand what Paul's telling Timothy. You don't have to have a lot of money to love it. In fact, most people who don't have it love it more than people who do. He says some by longing for it. Listen to how serious this is have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul uses two chapters in 2 Corinthians to inform us that there's a measuring stick for our love of money. By the way, there's a third category. I said there's hoarders, there's spenders, and there's givers. That's the third category. And Paul uses 2 Corinthians chapters eight and nine to talk about giving, It's very interesting. Abundance is measured by how you give. We'll define giving in a moment. Again, back to uh, my friend Randy Alcorn, he says this Abundance is not God's provision for me to live in luxury, it's God's provision for me to help others live. God entrusts me with his money not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build his kingdom in heaven. Wow, what a statement. God has given me money, his money, not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build his kingdom in heaven. Now, we should really devote multiple weeks to the study of this important subject. But for today, we're just going to look at one quick uh, litmus test. Paul tells the, the Corinthians that there's, there's a way to tell about your attitude on money. It's a small section of the biblical theology on money, but it's a major indicator of our heart on money, and it is the subject of Giving. Now again, this is, I just gotta confess again, it's awfully awkward. This is not Rick saying, hey, give more so I can get a raise. Please understand that. This has nothing to do with that. When I'm talking about giving, I'm talking about to the Lord, not to Mission Road, Bible Church, not even to the pastoral staff. This is not personal, please. And I just wanna melt and go somewhere else when we talk about this. But the Bible talks about it, so we have to. I wanna give you 10 principles for giving And Paul uses giving as really a litmus test for exploring the rest of our attitude toward money to see whether we love it or not. Here's the bottom line. You can tell if you love money or not by how much you give away, primarily to the Lord, secondarily to how you cover uh, uh, the needs of saints. It's very, very clear We could go on to Acts chapter 2 and see that no one had need in Acts chapter 2 because everybody shared everything in common. It was biblical communism in, in the right sense. Everyone owned everything. No one went without because they so loved one another that no one said what I have is more important than what you need. So Paul talking to the Corinthians does it. Now, we're gonna go outside of uh, 2 Corinthians a little bit here in the beginning, but it's primarily rooted in these two chapters. Let me give you these 10 principles for giving. I hope you're there, still there in Matthew 6. We'll start there. Number one, giving is expected by Jesus. Giving is expected by Jesus. It's way beyond commanded. It's just expected. Go all the way back to verse one of chapter six. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So, when you give, he's talking about giving to the poor, but when you give, not if you give, when you give. Jesus has serious expectations that we would not be hoarders of money or spenders of money at the expense of givers of money. Giving is expected by the Lord. And I have have a very strong suspicion that one of the things for which we will give an account on the great day before the Lord is our resources, is our money. It's so trite, we don't think about it. But think about it. You can't take it with you when you die, right? Can you? Let's, let's be even more trite, more redundant. No one's ever seen a, a hearse pulling a U haul, right? It, it, you can't take it with you. We are here. I had someone tell me everything about our life, our giving, our eating, all that we're doing while we're here is rearranging molecules on this planet. What's really about is preparing our souls for eternity. Jesus expects, he doesn't say if you give, he says when you give. So understand, baseline, it's not if, it's when, it's how much, it's what the target is, when you give. Jesus expects that to be a part of our life, when you give to the poor. Number two, giving is to be properly motivated. Now let's go backwards and look at verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. And the context in verse two is giving. And you won't have a reward of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, don't pound your chest about all you give. Your right hand should not know what your left hand is doing, verse three says. What that means is you don't tell people as a braggadocious statement of, of what you're doing and you're giving. There's a great story of uh, Charles Spurgeon, who um, the, uh, he and his wife had some chickens, and they, uh, they, they raised these chickens for eggs, and they would sell the eggs. Now, Spurgeon was a very giving, generous man. Uh, he, he was um, uh, definitely on the wealthier side, but he was a very strong giver. But he did not budge in selling eggs. He would not give eggs to anybody, even his own family, who would say, hey, Chuck, Charles, Mr. Spurge, can we have some eggs? Come on, we know. And he was ridiculed for that. It wasn't until after he died, he never told anybody. It wasn't until after he died that it was found out why he wouldn't give anybody any eggs. He had a thriving egg business so he could use all of that money carefully accounted for to support two widows. But he took all sorts of abuse in his life because he didn't wanna steal his reward in heaven. He wouldn't tell people. So be careful. It's to be properly motivated. We practice our righteousness before the Lord, not men. Here's a quick test. Find someone with a need. Meet that need with an envelope of cash that can in no way be traced back to you. Here's another test for you. We, this is, it's okay to have a, a, a tax write-off for your giving, it's fine. The government allows for that. Test your heart. Put some cash in an envelope and put it in a plate, knowing that you'll get no write-off, you just wanna give it to the Lord. Now, I wouldn't do that every week, that's bad stewardship. Test your heart, see if you're doing this for advantage or to be noticed. It has to be properly motivated. Let me say it this way. If you're giving to the Lord and it's not properly motivated, that gift is not blessed. Number three. Now let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to bounce around in these two chapters. I got to confess, when I first started looking at these two chapters, I had about 22 principles. And thought, no, that's, that's for another series, another time. So we're just gonna nail it down to just a few here. Number three, giving is rooted in the gospel. Giving is rooted in the gospel. In this context of giving, look at verse nine. Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Rich, it's interesting that Paul uses the, the life of the Lord, the sacrifice of the Lord, the gospel itself to illustrate emptying of, one, of one's wealth for the benefit of someone, of someone uh, that you know. Think about it this way. Um, how much did Jesus in terms of resources give up when he went from sitting at the right hand of God to lying in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger? We found out about the Lord, he didn't even have a place to lay his head. He he wasn't wealthy from any stretch. Even the, when the disciples roamed around, he never had the purse, right? Who, by the way, who had the purse? Judas was looking over the money. We don't have any record that Jesus had anything other than what he was wearing. And yet, he had everything in heaven. Emptied himself of that, set aside his wealth in heaven to come and become a man to rescue us from sins. And in the context here, that's an illustration of how we're to view our resources. There's nothing that's so important to keep, no amount of money that's important to hoard if we can be more invested in spiritual realities Giving is linked to spiritual growth and understanding. Giving is linked to spiritual growth and understanding. Tell me how much you give. I can tell you about your spiritual maturity. I'm not talking about um, percentages. That's a good place to start to think about it. It's about sacrifice. When you read this whole chapter, it's not about you know 10% and the tithe and that's for another study, but understand a tithe was, was not just a 10th. It was pretty, depending on which, uh, which prophet you read, it was a temple tax that went between 25 and 37%. It was, it was a tax. But I don't think we should throw that out. I think a 10th is a good place to start. And when you're doing free grace giving, we can do a whole lot better than a temple tax. Number four, giving is the reflex of grace. This is so important. Giving is the reflex of grace. Let me tell you this. The word grace is found more times in chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians than in any other two chapters in the Bible. Think about that. And it's all about giving. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. He's saying these Macedonians who were great examples of givers were not rich. They had their own issues going on. And they gave out of their, their love for and appreciation of grace. Grace motivates giving. How does it motivate giving? what is grace? Grace is God giving us something we don't deserve. It's God giving something we don't deserve. So when you see a need, um, it doesn't mean you have to have them fill out an application to see if you're going to help them with their rent. You know, I, I actually, I need, I need six months worth of references. I need to find, It's grace. It's giving what people don't deserve. Who, who really deserves anything 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that God did not give to you? It's all of grace. People who are full of God's grace are gracious with their finances. I have a friend, he drives me nuts. He, you just can't outgive him. He is constantly giving. I know for a fact, he doesn't know that I know this, but I know for a fact that he has supported a couple all the way through seminary to the tune of a lot of money. They were from another country every month and they never knew who did it. He got no tax benefit. He got no, no high five. He got no thank you from them. So I asked him about that. I said, not that. I knew he was doing something. I said, why do you do, why are you giving like this? He says, God's given me so much. It's just, It's just money. People who have a love of money would not say it's just money. They would say it's money. It's the reflex of grace. People who've experienced God's grace have a reflex to be givers. Number five, giving is to be wholehearted and joyful. This is interesting. Wholehearted and joyful. Look over at chapter nine, verse seven. Let me encourage you just as a family to read verses, uh, chapters eight and nine all the way through. Like I said, I started with 22 principles before we pared it down. Verse nine, excuse me, chapter nine, verse seven. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart. We'll come back to that in a moment. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver wholeheartedly, cheerful. By the way, the cheer doesn't come at, um, much as, as much as a motivation, but as a reward. I, let me give you the basic principle, okay? And I, I hope I know the answer to this question before I ask it, okay? Just a few months ago, we had Christmas. You're sitting around Christmas. Everyone loves to open a present. I love opening presents. It's just great to open a present. Compare opening a present to sacrificing for a gift for someone and giving it to them and the joy of watching them open your gift. Which really brings the, the greater joy? I hope it's the giving. It's spreading, just giving joy. It's the, the joy, the, the happiness that comes from giving. That's what's going on here. God loves when we cheerfully give. Is to be wholehearted it's a part of our deliberate worship. We'll come back to verse seven in a second. If you go over it, just hold your finger there for number six. Giving is a part of worship. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Just turn back a few pages. In 1 Corinthians 16, we see this so clearly. It's a part of worship. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Paul says, as a part of their worship, they took up collections for ministry. It was a part of their worship. It wasn't uh, inordinate. It was, um, it was a part of what they did in their service. They took a collection Is giving a part of your worship? Is giving a part of your tax strategy or is giving a part of your worship? You're not giving to the church. You're not giving to specific saints as much as you're giving to the Lord. You know why? Because it unleashes our grip on this planet. It's to be a part of worship. Number seven. Back to 2 Corinthians. This is really important. And now we'll get back into the well, how much is too much? How much is enough? Giving is related to our ability. Giving is related to our ability. Look at verse chapter 8, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 8, 3. I testify that according to their ability, and read the next phrase. Do you see what it says there? And what? Beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Let me give you a picture there. Uh, the, the, the church in Jerusalem was, was in trouble. This was up in Macedonia. So, uh, up around uh, the, uh, uh, was north of, of Jerusalem where the persecution wasn't as hot yet. The church in Jerusalem was largely made up of Jews, right? They had been disenfranchised disenfranchised from their families. They'd lost jobs. They were put out on the street. They were literally starving to death because of their faith. So Paul tells these Macedonian churches, you know what they did? They liquidated everything they could. They went beyond their ability. The ability here has the idea of what, what's, what's liquid, what you can do. The beyond their ability means that they they gave up things that they had that weren't liquid for them, spendable, so they could give. Nothing was too precious when it came to meeting the needs of the saints. It's remarkable. It was related to their ability. Look down at verses 11 and 12. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness and desire to do it, there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Now, there's a difference here between ability and beyond their ability and have and not have. Beyond their ability means they just liquidated things. This is saying don't be foolish. Don't write a check to someone. I just wanna bless you. I wanna pay for your mortgage and the check balances. That's not good stewardship. He's saying be wise. It's related to ability. Too often we assume that God has increased our income so that we can have more rather than looking at the fact that God has increased our income so that we can give more and take care of more. Number eight, you gotta be saying, then what's in it for me? Paul knew you would ask that. It's not a bad question. What's in it for me? Number eight, giving has promised returns. Giving possesses, it includes promised returns. Look at verse six. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a a, a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious return work as well, verse seven, just as you abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and all earnestness, in love we inspired you that you abound in this gracious work also. You're going to abound. God's going to give you more. Here's the deal. How many times have you heard it? You cannot out give what? God. Look over at chapter nine. Verses. Let's pick it up at six. Now, I say this: He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Pretty simple. If you're going to invest, the basic principle that Jesus outlines is that the more you invest, the more return you get. It's the same spiritually here but you won't always get the financial return, but God will bless you in in inexplicable ways. It's hard to see people. I've known so many people who just have this gift of giving and they never seem to lack. They never run out of of stuff to give. It's promised returned. Stay right there. Chapter uh, nine, also number nine. Giving must be intentional. I told you we'd come back to this verse. Verse. Look at verse seven. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, when you come to church, you write a check. If you have this attitude, oh man, I guess we'll give, because I mean the, it is nice to have lights, and uh, you know, we, we gotta make sure that you know, Aaron and Kimberly are feeding their kids. And that's, that's not the way you give, but it is purposed, Here's the deal. If you're deciding what your giving is going to be, when Bob prays for the offering, you've not obeyed this verse. It's intentional. It has a forethought. It's on purpose. Now, if we want to add to those things, that's always a great thing to, to respond to. But it's intentional. As purposed in our heart, Paul says. So what have you purposed? Let me ask you, husbands and wives, have you talked about your giving? Have you talked about what you give? Why you give? How much you give? Can you increase that? What it's for? How you can pray for that? It's it's all a part of spiritual growth with each other. And again, it's not so much to meet the needs of the church as it is to extract sacrifice from our heart. So how much should you give if you're gonna be intentional? This chapter doesn't say... I grew up in a Baptist church where we didn't even talk about offerings. It was the what? The tithe. It was a verb. It was a noun. The tithe, the tithe, the tithe. Are you tithing? What's the tithe? And, and, and typically it was 10%. Then there was this big question, well, should you tithe off of your net or gross? When we're asking those questions, we're asking the wrong questions. If I can, this is, this is not, there's no biblical authority in what I'm saying. There's wisdom. If the Old Testament temple tax started at 10%, those of us who've received the grace of having all of our sins forgiven for all eternity who will live with a living, resurrected Savior who died for our sins, 10% seems pretty, pretty squeamish. A friend of mine who first started t- teaching me about giving, he says... I said, how much do I give? How how much should I give? He says, don't give. You're not giving, according to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you're not giving enough unless you're saying no to something so that you can say yes to what you're giving. That was a great principle. That's the point of, what's the word? Sacrificial giving, which this whole chapter is about. And number 10. 10. We had to go here. Giving is more than monetary. Turn back over to chapter eight, verse five. I love this. Not only this, we expect it. They first gave money, what does it say there? Themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. In other words, giving is a little part of who we are. Financial giving. The bigger deal, the bigger issue is giving all of who we are for the betterment of the church, the betterment of the kingdom of God, the betterment of the people around us. Can I go back to Mr. Alcorn for a second? He says this. I love this illustration. I've talked about this before, but he says it so well. He says this. Suppose your home is in France and you're visiting America for three months and you're living in a hotel. You're told that you cannot bring anything back to France on your way home, but you can earn as much money as possible here in America and mail deposits back to your bank account in France. I love this. Would you fill your hotel room with expensive furniture and wall hangings? Of course not, he says. You'd send your money where your home is. You would send only what you you would spend only what you needed on the temporary residence here, sending your treasure ahead so they'd be waiting for you when you got home. End quote. You understand what he's saying, right? Are we investing in the kingdom or are we investing? Here, footnote. There's nothing wrong with having a nice couch. We're gonna get to this in Ecclesiastes. Nothing wrong with having a nice picture that you hang to enjoy. That's not, it's the love of those things at the expense of the kingdom of God that God is so serious about. By the way, that's why we've launched the ABLE initiative. Uh, what we're trying to do uh, over and above our giving for these next couple of years is to try to reduce our debt in the church so that that extra income that from the, paying off the debt and even what we're giving toward the debt now can be turned into money that could advance the gospel. Missions, uh, uh, what's going on in our city, uh, supporting people who are, who are going to train for the ministry, supporting uh, pastors who are tr- coming here to be trained. So many things that we could do better than paying off interest on a loan. And can I say thank you for those of you who've been invested in that? It's, to see what God has done in this little... Um, Uh, amount of time in the last few months is is remarkable. Thank you for your investment in that. We're breaking all the rules here at Mission Road. When you're supposed to, you're supposed to have the big giving campaign before you accumulate debt. But since ours was emergency, we didn't get to do it. Secondly, you're supposed to get a big firm. We looked into some firms that would help us uh, in in the ABLE initiative. They wanted 10% of everything that we got in. And we just said, maybe we're stupid, but... We just think we can tell our people and we can all get behind it. And you have done that incredibly. Hebrews chapter 13, turn there real quickly. Let's wrap this up. Hebrews 13, this is the verse. If you want a passage to talk about with your family, this is the verse. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Make sure that your character is, here's our phrase again, free from the, say it, love of money. Now watch this. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Are we content? Doesn't mean you don't buy a new jacket. Doesn't mean you don't buy new clothes. Doesn't mean you don't get a new car. It just means that we're wise with our spending, so that we are investing into the kingdom. So, why talk about giving? When we're talking about the stewardship of money because Paul says in these two chapters, and in Jesus says in Matthew six, that how we give is a good indication of our stewardship of our resources. Most important part of this whole study is that the gospel motivates our giving, rearranges our understanding of our resources. The well, last month we've studied in our adult Bible fellowship, and I hope you've come the the aspect of spiritual finances and how we're supposed to respond biblically and with our souls to our our finances. If you have any issues, if you wanna talk about that, we're not financial counselors, but we have some some really good uh, help in our church that can give you some traction on getting out of debt and getting to the place where you can joyfully give. Just know this, if you don't get traction on this, remember what Paul told Timothy? It will distract you and the end result is it could lead you from the faith because where your treasure is there is your heart also Amen. Father give us perspective thank you for your clear teaching pray that our giving is motivated wisely that, that you take care of our needs and more needs that are in our church and that uh, we ask again that you would relieve through our sacrifices our debt so that we could Have all of those resources channeling and funneling into specific, tangible gospel realities. Thank you for this church that gives so well. Thank you for the sacrifices of so many. Cause there to be a return of joy in their soul. In Jesus' name, amen.